Hey, welcome world travelers and fellow adventurers to the Tales of a Traveler podcast. It's me, your host, Stacey Utek. My greatest joy is traveling and exploring the world with people that I love. I have been to 63 countries and have a bunch of stories to share with you. So thanks so much for joining me as I venture down memory lane and share with you the tales of my adventures from around the world. Hey, welcome back to Tales of a Traveler. Thanks again for tuning in. I so appreciate you guys just listening in. Um, Hey, I wanted to jump backwards a little bit and flesh a few more things out that I didn't get a chance to in our last episode because last episode I had Katie on and we were talking about the world race and we briefly touched on Thailand, but I really wanted to go back because uh, Thailand has been... um, the country that I've been to the the most times. I've been there nine times. Uh, The first few times I was a participant on a team going to Thailand. And then I ended up leading a bunch of teams back to Thailand to the red light district with students that I uh, oversaw at the college that I worked at for nine years. Um, And so I kind of wanted to retrace some steps and give you a little more context. I don't have a guest on today. Uh, you just get little old me, but there's a lot to talk about. And uh, a lot of my stories from travel are fun and, you know, quirky and weird. And my guests have been super great to talk to. But this episode is going to be a little bit more intense and heavy. And it's because of the nature of what I want to talk about. But it's so important that I talk about it because it has been a thread throughout my life. And it, I think it is really a piece of my calling and something that I'm meant to really have my hand in for the rest of my days here on earth. So not to get too intense too quickly, but I did want to share my heart for this. And for a lot of you guys listening, a lot of you all have been with me to Thailand, a, a big handful of y'all. And so you know this piece of my heart and how important it is to me. But for those of you who haven't who have not been to Thailand with me, hopefully I can give you a little taste of why it's important to me. Um, so, like I said, and I hinted at in the last couple episodes, when I were, was in college, I actually volunteered with a ministry in Chicago that reached out to male prostitutes in the downtown area. And so we'd go out once a week and we'd do outreach. We'd talk to the guys. There was like um, like a base where they could go and get help with their resume or get clothes or a shower or food. And I was super impacted by that time. And I know it sounds kind of intense, but I loved it. I felt like a fire inside of me every time I'd go and talk to these men. And one of the guys that I volunteered with had been telling me about um, someone he knew who had been in the red light district in Thailand and their experience. And so we talked about it quite a bit. And so I was not even aware that there was a major uh, issue with prostitution in Thailand uh, until he and I he and I talked. And then when I went on the world race, we ended up going to the red light district in Thailand. And we lived there for about six weeks-ish. And um, like I said in the last podcast, we'd go out a couple, a handful of times a week and we'd go to the bar areas um, and and go and talk to the women who were there. And I distinctly remember my first time walking into the red light district. Um, It's like a very large, the one we went to is the largest one in Bangkok. And in Thailand, they're estimated between 800,000 and 2 million prostitutes. And prostitution in Thailand is seen as more of like a middle-class job. Like if you didn't get education, which a lot of Thai families grow up in poverty. And so many 
parents will sell their children into the trade and because they need money desperately to eat and to send. So they, the girls would go into the city, prostitute themselves, send back money. But the families aren't always aware of what exactly the women are doing. Sometimes they think they're just bartenders, but in fact, they go into the bars and they are sold for sex every night, multiple times a night often. And so kids are sold into it as young as 14, 15, 16. Um, and it's seen as a good way to make money. Um, it's not looked down upon. Um, in fact, in Thailand, prostitution is technically illegal, but they turn a blind eye to it because it brings so much revenue into the country. So I even remember like, rewinding a bit more, going into the airport in Bangkok. Every time I've been to the airport in Bangkok, every man I see... <laughs> I'm super skeptical of because you'll be in Bangkok and you'll see any kind of a man like the men walking around with these young girls hand in hand, arm arms around them, um, unashamed, you know, they look like they could have been my grandpa or my dad or my college buddy. And so I think that felt really shocking at how on the surface it is, how, you know, there really is a blind eye turned to it because, they, you know, the country needs the tourism. And so um, I remember the first night going in and it was the largest red light district in Bangkok. There are many, but it's like a horseshoe shaped outdoor bar that has like three bar area that has like three levels and there are little bars that you can walk into. And we would go into multiple per night and we would just grab a soda and sit and then like Essentially, sorry, I'm trying to explain this in a way without getting all jumbled, jumbled up in my head, but you basically go in and you sit and there's like stadium seating and then there's a stage where the women are dancing either partially naked or fully naked and they have a number on them. And the ones we went into mostly had women, you know, who would be wearing bikinis or things like that. And we would just try to make eye contact with the women and then they would come and sit with you. And the assumption, especially for me as a woman, was if I'm in that bar, I'm there to take a woman home um, and have sex with her. But we would just go and talk with the same women multiple times a week and just say, hey, we're here to make friends and just talk with them. And then there was an organization called Nightlight in Bangkok that we would, obviously, we went, were doing outreach with them and we would connect them with Nightlight. And Nightlight worked to get the women out. They gave them a job making jewelry. I mean, now they're doing like screen printing and baking and they have like this incredible base. They have a coffee shop there. Um, lots of ministries geared towards the women. But the ultimate goal was to get the women, you know, a paying job so that they wouldn't have to prostitute themselves every night. But that's what we did. And I I know I'm kind of jumping all over, but I did want to talk a little bit about the first, my first impression when I first went into the red light district. It was hard. Um, as I walked up every level, I felt physically heavy. Um, like there was just like this evil, like almost like an evil spirit just sitting on my chest. And one of the volunteers with the organization showed us, they're like, here, come look at this. And up a little stairwell near one of the bars was, um, a bunch of baby bottles. Um, I know this is going to sound a bit strange, but it, the primary religion in Thailand is Buddhism. And 
for them, those baby bottles represented each abortion that had happened due to a pregnancy that had like women who had gotten pregnant within their bar, um, employees of theirs. And it was, um, they said it was like basically a sacrifice, like a, a, a physical representation of like sacrifice and saying like, like almost an appeasing for the abortion. Um, so really, really hard stuff to see. And as we went into the bars, like I said, it was not easy to sit there and make eye contact with a woman and like have her come over and, you know, and then just have to explain, hey, like I'm here to make friends. But on the flip side of that, I started to really see these women who were so scared and they would sit by me and I could see the fear in their eyes, even as you watch them on stage, um, just utter fear. And um, there was a night where uh, we went and basically you can pay the bar price, um, which is the price you'd pay to take a woman out of the bar. And then usually they go and have sex with someone and then that person tips them as well. Um, But we would go and sometimes pay the bar price for the woman and take her out to eat or just, you know, take her out for a while. Um, and I remember one night we went and we we took two girls out and they were 14 and 15 years old. And and basically they have to lie and say they're, I think, 16 or something like that, um, but super young. And one of the girls said she had slept with a man before and one said she had never. And she was, you could just tell they were just like these terrified girls, but they were cousins that had been sent in from like the village areas and had only been there for a few months in just trying to make money. And we took them out that night and I remember um, taking them out to eat and then we took them dancing. Um, And it was actually really cool because the place that we went, there was nobody on the dance floor. And when we got on the dance floor, I remember just being thankful that we were the only ones there because they were like these 14 and 15 year old girls that should be sitting around and painting their nails and talking about boys. And instead they were in these bars every night getting raped, almost getting raped. And, um, and I just remember being like, this is so wrong. Uh, but that one night felt like we were laughing and talking like they were just these teenage girls, exactly who, who they should be. And there was no man on the dance floor, like looking at them, looking at their bodies. And I remember like, you can take the girl out and then, you know, she doesn't have to go back to the bar, but I remember both of them saying we need to go back. And like, they knew that they needed to make money that night. So there was this like balance of like, oh my gosh, it's so fun. Like we get to see them laugh and let loose and be young. And then to take them back and drop them back off at the red light district was heartbreaking. And so there were a lot of moments like that. And um, there were a bunch of what they call lady boy bars. So they're um, men who dress as women, essentially transvestites. Some have partial surgery, some have full to transition um, into being a woman. Um, but the, the heartbreaking thing to hear about that was, um, because prostitution is a money making profession in Thailand, if you come from a poor family and you were born a boy, um, often families would start dressing their little boys in dresses and basically grooming them to then go to be prostituted in the bar areas. Um, so just like really hard, hard realities and the things that I know I've never had to wrestle with or think about. Um, 
And like I said, I, you know, I spent several weeks in Bangkok knowing I, this won't be my last time here. There was a weight on my heart that I couldn't deny that, um, I knew I'd have to come back again and again. So when I started working at a university out in Ohio, uh, it only took a few years for me to decide like, Hey, I, I need to take some students with me and show them this place and let the, let it sink in and affect them and bring them to a place where they get to bring hope as well because we all carry light and light in the darkness exposes and it brings something it brings warmth and sheds light and so I knew that we needed to do that um so I started bringing small groups of students and then it grew and grew and then I was bringing teams both with men and women um and we would go into the red light district, you know, for a couple of days in Bangkok. And then we would go up north to Chiang Mai and volunteer with an organization that actually would go into villages and identify the vulnerable kids before they were ever sold um, into, yeah, into the, into prostitution. And they would put them in homes and get them education and clean clothes and food and community housing and like just incredible, incredible stuff. Like basically... Um, catching them before they're ever raped once, which is incredible. Um, But there was this one specific time that I took some students and, you know, every time I walk into the red light district, I start to cry like immediately. It touches me. It affects me. I feel it. It just like something overtakes me and it's like I'm overwhelmed. And it's not like I'm overwhelmed because it's too much. I'm overwhelmed because of just like the amount of emotion I can feel coming off of this place, like the women who are taken advantage of the, the slavery, the evil, the bondage, the darkness that's there. Um, it just takes, takes over me. And, um, I'm so grateful for the incredible people who are on the ground doing the long-term work. Um, I've only been a few times and I've only brought you know, handfuls of students, but I feel really grateful for, um, people who are fighting for justice every single day in this country and around the world. Um, but there was one specific time where I brought a team and I remembered walking, we were walking out of the red light district and getting ready to head home. And I saw this older man, he probably, gosh, he was probably in his 50s or 60s, maybe in his 60s or higher. He was he was older. Um, and he had his hand on the back of a young, young girl, and he was leading her out. And I remembered praying and saying, God, please, please don't let her get raped tonight. And it was the first time that I had ever prayed a prayer that I felt like would not be answered. Um. And that's really hard for me because I know I've known the Lord my whole life. And, um, you know, I, I don't know my full audience here that's listening. Like some of you guys might know the Lord personally and some of you might not. I think we've all been through times in our life where we wonder or we doubt the existence of God or we wonder why would he allow this evil. And those are the kinds of things that I processed with my students multiple times. Like why would a good God allow this to happen. And there are a lot of good packaged up answers that you could give. But when you're in that moment, like, and I'm not just talking about what I experienced in the red light district, like you, you know, when you're in a moment where you're losing someone, 
there's an abrupt death, where there's something incredibly evil that's taken place in your life or has happened to you. To not know the nature of God as a good God, um, that's really, really, really hard. And I don't want to take that lightly. And I felt that. Like, I felt like, God, you're not going to answer this prayer. Like, she's going to get raped tonight. And the next morning I woke up and it was heavy in my heart still. And I opened my Bible to Psalm 10. And I'm just going to read a little excerpt um, from it. I'm not going to read all of it. I'm going to bounce around a bit. But yeah, just hear these words. And yeah, here it goes. <laughs> Psalm 10. Uh, Why, O oh Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? The helpless are crushed, sink down, and fall by his might. He says in his heart, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. Arise, O Lord, O God, lift up your hand. Forget not the afflicted. Why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, you will not call to account? But you do see, for you note mischief and vexation, that you may take it into your hands. To you the helpless commits himself. You have been the helper of the fatherless. Break the arm of the wicked and the evildoer. Call his wickedness to account till you find none. The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations perish from his, his land. O Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed so that man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. And I remember sitting in my room reading this passage and I just started crying and just sobbing like over the the evil that I'd seen, over the helpless who it just felt like there was no solution, like there was just darkness and no way out. And I read this and I'm like, okay, you do hear the desire of the afflicted. Lord, you will strengthen your heart and you will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed. And these are things I had to cling to. I had nothing more. And I think there isn't always an answer. There's not a clean cut answer for why there's evil in the world. And I've seen more evil than I can even bear to hold on to. It's rough. And so I think I'm not here to give answers or to have it all figured out because I definitely don't. What I do know is that despite what has happened or what is happening, those who are being oppressed are strengthened by the Lord. They are heard. He does hear. His heart is broken. He does mourn with those who mourn. And I know we have a God who is filled with compassion at his children who are who are hurting. So yeah, that that experience, that time in Thailand, it's something that like I continue to feel compelled to go back again and again. Uh, it's something that I'll continue to talk about on this podcast and keep bringing up. Um, I will bring on, I'm sure, a, a, a few people who've been to Thailand with me to get their experience, to hear what they have to say. Um, this is my heart. And 
it is a piece of what I really feel like I will go after for the rest of my life is going back and continuing to bring hope and carry light into dark places. So, yeah, this has been a little all over the place. Thanks for putting up with um, the mess, but life is messy (laughs) and travel isn't always fun and neat and um, packaged up nicely. There are a lot of realities that are worth wrestling through. And so I thank you for being on this journey with me yet again. And thank you again for listening and we will see you next time.